You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, Almighty God, we thank you for, um, for the blessing of your grace, the blessing of your Holy Spirit, and the, uh, the blessing of eternal life through Christ. And I pray, God, that you would uh, bless this class, that you would uh, teach us, and that your truth would go forward, and that we'd be encouraged, that we have hope, peace, and joy in Christ. Matthew's prayer in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is uh, class number six of a series on heaven consciousness, and uh, I'm going to do a quick little bit of review before we get into it, but today we're going to talk about contentment, how it is that a heavenly perspective, a he- heavenly mindedness, enables us to have greater contentment. And so just to review, um, no, no, not there. There we go. Let's go on back. Um, just to review, so at the beginning of this class, we kind of talked about um, heaven, uh, just more in terms of information. We talked about future heaven, that's what we think of histor- you know, typically. When we're thinking about heaven, we think about going to be with Jesus, we think about the second coming of Christ, the new heavens, the new earth, the resurrection of the dead, those kind of things. So that's future heaven. Um, but we also looked at present heaven, the, uh, what we see in the New Testament, but particularly in Paul, that when Jesus comes, and he lives and he dies and he raises from the dead, that that is actually the beginning of heaven on earth in a partial sense. That is the initiation of what we call the age to come, um, which is the age that uh, in the Old Testament that Jews expected uh, that there would be a merger of heaven and earth together. And so Paul says that in a partial sense that has already occurred, that heaven has come, the day of the Lord has come, and so we currently live in this overlap that we call the already and the not yet. Um, where uh, the, the age to come has, has started, but the present evil age, uh, the fallen world, continues until the second coming of Christ. So we looked at that, and that, that's you know, kind of instrumental uh, for Paul's heavenly mindedness and for, our, for, for us having a sense of heaven consciousness. Um, and so we, uh, we talked then about how when you become a believer in Christ, there is this transfer from... Uh, the domain of darkness from death into the new creation. There's a transfer into the kingdom of God. There's a transfer into the age to come. So if Paul talks in Philippians 3 about our citizenship being in heaven, uh, this transfer that we're talking about when a person repents and believes in Christ is that they are now a citizen of heaven. That's their true home. Even though you live on earth, you're in exile on earth, your true home is actually in heaven. Because as it says in Colossians 1, that you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And so, um, and so as a result of these different factors, um, what you see is Paul calling for heavenly mindedness. And I define heavenly mindedness as a spiritual discipline whereby we deliberately think about heaven, we meditate on heaven, and we think about matters and challenges and situations in our life with an eternal perspective with the perspective of our life, our eternal life in heaven with Christ in mind. And so as a result of that, as you um, grow closer to Christ, as you learn more about him, you learn more about the gospel, you learn more about the heavenly realities of your salvation, then the, the term that I coin is heaven consciousness. And this is what you observe when you read Paul's letters. You observe a heaven consciousness where Paul 
heaven is just integrated into the rhythm of his life. When he thinks about suffering, he immediately turns his mind to eternal life. When he is thinking about, uh, when he thinks about heaven, it motivates him towards uh, evangelism and missions. Um, when he uh, thinks about morality, he thinks about it in what we call eschatological or heavenly terms. And so, um, and so the kind of hope here is that the Lord would move us to where we have a greater heaven consciousness, where heaven is just more a part of our daily perspective, whether it's, you know, the way we, um, our motivation to wash the dishes at night, <laughs> to serve the people in our household, the way we deal with traffic on 280, um, the way we deal with really bad news, um, the way that we repent throughout life. And so the hope is that we would grow in a heaven consciousness that our, we would just, eternity would be the air that we breathe. Um, and so, I'm going to skip this, and let's just get down to business. So today, our, our, last, um, our last class is going to be on contentment. We're going to look at how, particularly focusing on the book of Philippians, how Paul has a greater sense of contentment that is a byproduct of his heaven consciousness. And so, um, and so I want to start out with this image. You can see up here, uh, Jumbi Bay versus the Greyhound bus. All right, so this is going to be this is going to be sound silly, but it's going to be key. So stay with me here. Um, what you see here is uh, Jumbi Bay, uh, which my friend, travel agent uh, Beth Flowers, told me is one of the finest all-inclusive resorts in the world. It's on the island of Antigua, and uh, it is, I mean, like world-class gourmet food. You have your own villa. You got a nice seat. You can see the villa there. Got a nice view. It's very private very pampered, and, it, and it's a deal. Um, you know, $3,500 a night in peak season, uh, that is the entry. Um, there are other options that are like fifteen grand a night. Um, but this is, uh, this is Jumbi Bay, okay? And so, um, so my, this is kind of, I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek, so don't take this, don't be offended by this, please. But I, I kind of talk about, you know, and thinking about heaven and thinking about eternal life, it's as if we are on our way to Jumbi Bay. We're on our way to the great all-inclusive resort in the sky. Now, obviously, heaven is going to be much greater than that. Um, it's going to be far greater than any resort on this earth, and it's not going to be defined by, you know, having manicures and pedicures in your room. It's going to be defined by seeing the glory of Jesus and being in perfect communion with Jesus, being delivered from the pains and the trials of this world, being delivered from our own sins. But in terms of, you know, expectation, if you think about, you know, how good can it get in this life, Jumbi Bay is pretty good. Pretty good, right? Okay, so, so in using this analogy, that's where we're headed. But our means of transportation to get to Jumbi Bay is a Greyhound bus, Okay. Not knocking the Greyhound bus uh, provides a valuable service for many people. Um, I know someone who took the Greyhound bus from Los Angeles to Birmingham. And um, I'll just say it's not a trip that I would prefer to take. <laughs> um, and so, by the way, I, I looked, and you know, there are some nice stops along the way. You know, you, uh, if you're going from Birmingham to Los Angeles, you, know, you stop in Shreveport. I hear Shreveport's lovely this time of year. Um, you know, you stop in Dallas. Dallas is kind of cool. You know, you stop at a border town uh, in south, as far west and south Texas as you can get. Uh, you know, you drive through the desert. That's probably pretty, but it's. I mean, it's a. It's it, it is a forty-seven hour trip on a Greyhound bus from Birmingham to Los Angeles, and it costs two hundred and forty-six dollars. 
I thought I was like, hey man, I, I might I might just pay a little bit more and take a red eye or something. Fly out of Atlanta. Um, but um, but yeah, and so the reason I'm bringing this up is that a lot of times we live with this expectation like we are in Jumbi Bay. We live with this, we, our hearts are, eternity is set on our heart. Like we have a desire for a perfect place. We have a desire for heaven. It says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity on the hearts of man. But we're in a greyhound bus. Like that's where we are right now. You know, the, the living in this fallen world. And there, like I said, there's some nice stops along the way um, if you take the greyhound. But I mean, it's, it's rough. <laughs> Life is rough. And so with that being said, if you don't have proper expectations, a proper appraisal of this life as compared to what your heart is made for, what your expectations are geared towards with heaven, you're going to find yourself very discontent, very frustrated. And so the, the verse that I'm going to... Um, well, where'd you go? Um, goodness gracious, oh well. You've got your worksheets. Um... Uh, the verse that we're going to focus on it's in, um, is in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 Philippians 4 verse 11 you can see it in that first passage on your worksheet um, but it says not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content so Paul is under house arrest he's in a situation right now where he is not sure whether or not he's going to receive the death penalty uh, this is bad. He's in a bad spot. Any of us um, who were in a situation like this, uh, we would be, we would not be content. You know, we would be fretting quite a bit. But Paul says that he has learned to be content. And if you read the whole book, you see that Paul is brimming with joy. Paul is very satisfied. That's the mood. That's the tone in the letter to the church at Philippi. And so he says here that I have learned to be content. That's, that learned part is something that stood out to me about a year ago when I was reading Philippians about how contentment is something that we kind of learn, that the Lord grows us in throughout our life. And I, I you know, I, see, I, um, I'm going to be 42 in a couple of weeks. Uh, amazingly, I've lived in, I've lived in six different, only 41, but I've lived in six different decades. I was born at the tail end of 79. Um, so, so with that being said, but I do find that I, uh, even though my circumstances are more challenging as I get older, I find that my level of contentment is greater because it's like the Lord just kind of gives you more and more tools to be able to cope with life and, you know, and enjoy the blessings of this life, enjoy Him and have realistic expectations. But you can see Paul has this learned contentment. And so uh, one time I was, I was uh, sitting outside the anthropology at the summit and uh, I got there about 10 minutes early, you know, just looking at the new spring, spring line. No, just kidding. I was looking for a gift for my wife. And um, it was raining. And I can remember just kind of asking myself in this kind of unusually pensive moment. I was like, am I happy? It's about 12 years ago. And I said, I kind of like uh, dismissed the question. Like, that's not really the question. Am I happy? The question is, am I content? Um, you know, because happiness is kind of fleeting and it's circumstantially dependent and it's not very stable. Whereas contentment, you can, you know, you can see here based on Paul, you can be content irrespective of circumstances in Christ. And so, um, and so, uh, one thing just to kind of start is to look at the modern mentality and just how discontent most people are. How discontent the world is 
particularly the secular world. I'm not meaning to hate, but it's just true. I mean, take a look at social media. Take a look. I mean, read. You know, I, I don't. I don't read the news much. I, I, I scroll new, uh, real clear politics every day just to look at the headlines. And it is just. It is a society of people who are outraged, who are angry, who are resentful, who are victimized, who are miserable, who are depressed. Um, the um, God. The incidents of depression, anxiety, uh, the just collective mood in the country is off the charts bad. Um, it is unbelievable how unhappy and miserable people in this country are. And yet, we live in the safest, most affluent, secure, healthiest society the world's ever seen, and yet people are miserable. Um, and so I think a large part of it is the overall worldview, the modern mentality. And so you can see here two great cliches, YOLO and FOMO, right? All right, so YOLO, i sorry, I can't, I know that I shouldn't have that condescending, you know, that condescending tone, but I just can't help myself. Sorry. If YOLO is your favorite, your favorite, you know, aphorism or expression, please, I hope I'm not offending you. But every time I say YOLO, I have to do it in a way where I'm mocking it. YOLO. Anyhow, so basically, um, YOLO is a, is a term that you see very frequently in today's world, meaning you only live once. And so it's like, you know, am I gonna am I gonna go on the big trip, or am I gonna you know jump jump out of the plane, or whatever it is? And the, the phrase is YOLO. You know, you only live once, so let's do it, right? And so you know, it's interesting because it's like cliche, and it's don't say dumb or stupid. It's cliche. It's not very deep, but at the same time, YOLO is deeply revelatory. It's deeply eschatological because let's dig into it. What is it saying? It's saying you only live one time, this life, this is it. And so YOLO is very descriptive of the modern mentality. There is this idea that this life is it. And that's part of why people are uh, just, there's so much FOMO. Fear of missing out. There's this, you know, mentality of I've got to pack it all in, and we've got the bucket lists, and people are in crazy debt because they just got to have what they're going to have, and they got to have it now. There's this need for instant gratification, and it's because if you believe that this is it, then you got to pack it in. You got to make the most of this life, and so I just just take a minute and let's just think. If YOLO is true, and if this life is it, this is, this is it. If you're, if you're not in Christ, uh, this life is as good as it's ever going to get. And that is incredibly depressing. Because I would say, circumstantially, you can't have a better life than I have. And this life is tough. It is really, really tough. And if this is it, I mean, it makes sense why people are so busy uh, numbing themselves and anesthetizing themselves with pleasure and busyness and phones and alcohol and drugs and so on and so forth. Because if this is it, that's really, really depressing. And so there's this ancient uh, philosophy that really is kind of the prevailing philosophy today called Epicureanism. Anybody here take Latin? Yes, yes, yes. Anybody study Horace, Ovid, Catullus? 
Yes! When your parents pay an exorbitant amount of money for you to major in Latin in college, you have to have moments like this in your classes. So, so anyhow, Epicureanism basically, um, it's, uh, it comes out of a, a worldview that all we are is atoms, all we are is matter. And so there is nothing beyond this life. And so basically, the mentality was, and here, let, let's take a look here at what uh, uh, Menetius, who's a Greek philosopher, say third, fourth century, says, Accustom thyself to believe that death is nothing to us. For good and evil implies sentience. It's like a sense of feeling. Death is the privation of all sentience, all feeling or sensation. Death, therefore, the most awful of evils, is nothing to us, seeing that when we are, death is not come, and when death is come, we are not. So basically the mentality is, uh, is that this life is it, all we are are atoms. That's material reductionism, the sense of like, there's no afterlife. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing spiritual. This is it. And folks, that's the prevailing secular worldview today. That is it. And so what's the response? What's the response to this? Well, Epicureans said, well, since this is the nature of life, there's no afterlife, all we are is atoms, then what we should do is maximize pleasure and reduce pain. And so that's, what, that's where Horace and Seize the Day comes from. Horace, how many of y'all are familiar with Carpe Diem? Right? But I bet not many of you, maybe Sherry, are familiar with Qual Minimum Credulo Postero. Sherry, can you translate that for us? Trusting in the future as little as possible. Seize the day, trusting in the future as little as possible. Because the, the future is flimsy, there's no afterlife, this is it. So as a result, seize the day. Maximize pleasure. And so the poetry of Epicurean poets of Rome was all about drink a little wine, have a little pleasure. Not too much, because you drink too much and that, that creates pain. But you know, but it's all about maximizing pleasure. And that really is kind of the world that we live in. It's a hedonistic world where pursuing pleasure is kind of the name of the game. And the deal is, is that is just not a very, a very satisfying way to live. It's a really depressing way that leaves people really, really empty. Um, and so, with that being said, Paul's worldview is the opposite. You know, Paul, Paul has a very low appraisal of this life. He has a high appraisal of the next life. And so it is his heavenly perspective... That is, I think, foundational to his contentment. His contentment even in really terrible circumstances like he's in as he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. And so we're going to look at a few texts in Philippians um, that are kind of emblematic of the eternal mindset that Paul has uh, with the hope that we can kind of, it helps us to build a a, a day-to-day perspective that's grounded in eternity and grounded in the realities of the present evil age that we live in now. And so, starting first, Philippians 4, 10 through 13, um, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, but now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So look at this here. Paul is saying, first off, that he's like, hey, I'm not lacking anything. I'm good. Like, I'm, 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 I'm sufficient. Um, or, I, you know, I, I, my needs are met sufficiently. He says, I've learned how to be content. And look here at how Paul says that he has been brought low and he's abounded. In every circumstance, he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So there is this catalog of juxtapositions here of good times and bad times. Good times and bad times. And so I think one thing that you can pick up on here is that he is tasting the lows of life in the fallen world, life in the present evil age. He knows that. He's, he's aware of that. And he's also tasting some of the joys and the blessings of, of the new heavenly age and some of the blessings of the creation. And so, you know, one thing I want to say is, like, I'm not saying, um, you know, like, ah, you know, this life is, is terrible and so let's just, you know, sign it off and just wait for heaven and just get through this. That's not all we're saying because when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, give us this day our daily bread, you know, part of what we're asking for is the Lord to bless us with the blessings of this life. You know, there are, in our liturgy, we talk about that, the blessings of this life. There are blessings, you know. There are, you know, there are friendships and there are, um, you know, fun times and there are, you know, special occasions, births and weddings and things like that. Um, there are neat vacations and great food and all kinds of things. And those are blessings from the Lord. And those are little appetizers and samplers of what God has for us in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, spiritually speaking, there are times where we feel really close to the Lord, where we feel the joy of Christ. There are times where we see God at work and we see his glory and creation in other places. And these are just little samples of what awaits us in heaven. And so you can see here that Paul is open to the blessings of this life, blessings that are a foretaste and a foreshadowing of what the Lord has to come, both in his circumstances. You see here he talks about um, you know, having plenty, talks about having abundance, but also too spiritually. Spiritually, you know, so the spiritual blessings that we can enjoy now in Christ, but that we also will enjoy exponentially and infinitely in heaven. And so the point to make here is that Paul um, lives with this acute awareness of the now and the not yet. He lives recognizing that, hey, I live in the fallen world and it's tough and there are challenges. I accept that, right? I accept life on life's terms. And I also know that Christ has come and the Spirit of God has been poured out and the new heavenly age has begun and I can enjoy that as well. And so Paul has an accurate appraisal of this life, both the good and the bad. And that is very, very helpful because going back to the modern mentality that I talked about, a lot of what causes so much of the discontentment and the angst and the depression of, of, of modern secular life is an inaccurate appraisal of this life. Thinking that this life is it. This is the pinnacle of existence. And, and there's nothing beyond it. And, and so, because there is an inaccurate worldview, um, that is going to create great discontentment because expectations are inaccurate. And so, first point here in, in, in this section from verse 4 is to have this, um, to have a biblical worldview 
that enables us to have realistic expectations of this life, both the good and the bad. Okay, second text, and this is a little bit of an accentuation of this first point, is uh, in, in Philippians 1, 21 through 25. So Paul says, for me to live, and by the way, Paul is in this position here where he is not clear on whether or not he's going to live or die. He's, you know, his, his mortality is in the balance. It's in the hands of a court. And so Paul says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, like life on earth or life in heaven. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Far better to be in heaven with Christ. Expectations. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your accounts. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith. And so, you know, this is a very much um, a rejection of YOLO. <laughs> there is no sense of FOMO for Paul. Um, he is clear that it's, uh, as the old ABC uh, 1980s soap opera, one life to live, not so much, not so much. Um, if anybody caught that, then toast coffee afterwards. Um, but anyhow, he's, he's clear that there are actually two lives to live. There's this life on earth, and there's the life in heaven. And also, too, what do we see here? What is his appraisal of life in heaven? Yeah, it's better. It's, it's infinitely better. And so um, he knows that that is ultimate. That is the sumum bonum, which is interesting because the Greek word for contentment in Philippians 4 is basically to be experiencing the highest good. To be experiencing the highest good. And so with that being said, he knows that that's in heaven. And so it's interesting how you can see that what is it that is kind of that he considers valuable about remaining in this life? What's driving him? God's plan for his life. Yeah, other people. That's right. You know, basically serving the church of Philippi in the gospel, seeing them mature and grow in their faith and in their joy. And so, um, and so with that being said, um, because he is so aware that the next life is going to be so good, that it's going to be so great, um, you can imagine that Paul does not have this sense of, I've got to pack it all in. And, you know, I don't, um, you know, one thing I think about a lot, and some of you may experience this, is I've got some just really special friendships from college, uh, friends that I just love. And, um, and I it just, I like, you go, you, you, you know, you get in life and things are busy and you pump out four kids in seven years and all of a sudden it's been 10 years since you saw your friend Chad, 15 years since you saw your friend Wit. And, you know, you're kind of like, ah, I really need to get up to Winston-Salem, or I really want to go out to Wyoming, or I need to get out to San Antonio and see Matt. And you've kind of got this sense of, I want to see these people. And I really do. I hope, you know, I, I like, I really do want to see these people. I hope, you know, I want to go to my reunion in 2022, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, I just, I'm obviously not going to be able to be able to spend a fraction of the amount of time with these friends that I want a friend, that I want to be with in this life. And that's where the, that's where the life to come uh, comes in is that I'll, I'll be able to spend eternity with those people. Uh, this, this FOMO of, oh, you know, I've got to see them, so on and so forth. I mean, yeah, I do want to see them, and I can hold that loosely. 
And I think that there's, um, I really like to travel. Like that is my jam. Love to travel. All these places I want to go to, all these things I want to do with my family. And there's just only so much money and there's only so much time, right? (laughs) The new heavens and the new earth, like, is going to be far greater than anything in the current earth. It's going to be, I mean, it's, it's going to be a physical, real earth. Heaven and earth will be together. And so, you know, there will be eternity to enjoy our inheritance with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, we, you know, this need, this FOMO, this need to pack it all in, you know, we can, we can really loosen up on that because, you know, we will enjoy those things free of cost without having to go through the Atlanta airport um, and it will be with Christ and it will be without fear, without the presence of sin, without, you know, uh, getting the stomach bug, you know, all those kind of things. It'll be perfect. And so that's all to say, like, you can see that with Paul. He is very aware that there's another life, it's a better life, and, and my, ex, my ultimate expectations can be set there, um, although there's value in this life as well. And so with that being said, with Paul lives under this worldview, um, we see going down to the text in Philippians 3, that so how then does Paul pursue contentment here and now? You know, what, what is driving it? He says, but whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of, of Christ. And when he's talking about gain, he's talking about all of his, uh, you know, all of his accomplishments, all the status that he had before he knew Christ. And he's like, that is rubbish relative to what I have now. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he is saying that there is basically nothing better in this life than intimacy with Jesus. That is, that is, that is what fulfills me. This is the bedrock of Paul's contentment and his satisfaction. It's intimacy with Jesus. It's joy in his relationship with God. And so Paul, you're going to see now a bunch of purpose statements. And his purpose is set on close fellowship with God. He says, uh, in order that I may gain Christ, that's a language of, of relational intimacy, be found in him, in him, that refers to union with Christ, you know, perfect oneness with Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, again, relational language, and the power of the resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And so, you know, and it's the gospel, it's the life and death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the the righteousness that comes to us by faith that enables this relationship with Jesus. And so, for Paul, since he's, uh, you know, he's he's aware that I'm going to be truly, perfectly happy in heaven. And so then there's the question, I, I come back to this every class, what makes heaven heaven? What makes heaven so good? And the things that make heaven so good are seeing Jesus and his glory in his fullness and experiencing perfect oneness with Jesus. That is going to be the fabric of our joy, is perfect communion with Jesus that is not deterred or interfered with through human sin, our own primarily. And so with that being said, Paul's like, all right, if what's going to make me happy there is my oneness with Jesus, being in close communion with Jesus, well, to pursue the most content life possible in this life, I'm going to pursue the most intimate relationship with Jesus as possible. And that's what his heart is set on. 
And so it's, 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 it's really like a foretaste of the core of heavenly joy. And so you can see that that's a big part of his contentment. And finally here, Philippians 3, verses 13 through 15, you can see that Paul, as a product of all this, he has an upward trajectory on life. Upward trajectory on life. By the way, just as like, you know, if you're looking for, a, you know, some devotional direction, Philippians is maybe like three pages. Like sit down one day this week, take 30 minutes, just read it from beginning to end, and just you'll see just how heavenly oriented this book is and how much you'll see this mood of joyfulness that he has. But he says in verses 3, uh, 13 through 15, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also. So when he says uh, straining forward to what lies ahead, he is talking about glory. He's talking about heaven. Um, And he says that he presses on towards the goal of the upward call. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so that upward call, that's, 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 you know, that is very much an eschatological statement, very much a heavenly-minded statement. And so his heart, his expectations, his mind, they are set on heaven. That's kind of the, the baseline for his ultimate existence. And his life here is lived uh, in light of that. And so um, finally, I'll, I'm going to have some time for questions. That's a first. My big mouth. Um, a few applications. Um, application number one is going from O crud to no crud. O crud to no crud. All right, here's what I mean by that. This is a this is a term that uh, one of my AA friends taught me. Um, and I'm not I'm not personally an AA. My friend is an AA, and he's taught every good expression I've ever learned has come from people who are in recovery. And so he says. Um, so basically, oh crud to no crud. Oh crud is we are surprised. We are surprised when things go wrong. We are surprised when there is pain and suffering. We are surprised when people do bad things. And, uh, and we say, oh crud, right? Well, no crud is like, duh. Like, let's be honest about where we live, you know? Uh, we live in a fallen world where there's death and there's sickness, and we're all a bunch of struggling sinners, you know, just just trying to make it. It's not surprising that this life is tough. You know, Jesus is very, very honest about the difficulty of this life. And so with that being said, that that drives our expectations. And I think we would all say that, you know, expectations tend to be a massive central factor in our level of contentment. I think that's a lot of why, when I do premarital counseling, the first thing I tell people is I say you need to lower your expectations of marriage and you need to lower your expectations of your spouse. Most people come in thinking that their spouse is going to be God. And they think that, that this person is going to fix all of their insecurities and their sense of loneliness and all these kind of things. It's like you're marrying a struggling sinner just like you. You're not marrying God. And so your expectations of your spouse need to go way down. And especially if you're my wife, they need to go way, way, way down. <laughs> but all that being said is 
expectations are so critical in terms of contentment. Uh, an example of this, maybe a bad example. Anybody ever stayed in a Drury Inn? Anybody stayed in the Drury? Okay, so I stayed in a Drury Inn. I, I was speaking up in Cape Girardeau, Missouri this past March, and they put me in a Drury Inn, and I, uh, I, had, I didn't know anything about it. And, um, and I, I looked online, and I saw it was like very inexpensive. I was like, mm, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> but anyhow, but um, I get there, and it was like, I mean, it's only like $94 a night. <laughs> Okay, so I have zero. I have very low expectations of of the jury in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I get there, staff is super friendly, place is way clean. Uh, I get to my room, very clean, very nice. They serve a full breakfast in the morning. I'm talking like eggs and bacon and sausage and oatmeal. They have a soda, like a soda machine that is on all the time. All the time, folks. That's like Diet Coke all day. That's like a dream. And then, get ready, get ready. At night, they serve a full dinner every night. Yes, $94, friends. And so uh, my expectations of the jury were very low, and I walk out of there thinking that I have been at the Ritz-Carlton. Okay? And I am like, every family vacation, we will stay at the jury Inn. Because you're going to get like, you're going to get $100. You're going to get $100 worth of food. You know, if you've got three kids, come on. I'm getting so excited about the jury Inn. This is so pitiful. Anyhow, but all that to say, it was all about expectations. You know, I had the most blissful stay at the Drury Inn because my expectations were so low and it just blew it out of the water. And so all that to say, bringing this back to the gospel, um, is that like when we live in a proper biblical uh, framework, we have realistic expectations of this life. You know, it, we, don't, we don't expect this to be heaven. We know that there is a heaven and it's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be the best. But until then, you know, we kind of have modest expectations of this life and we're not surprised when it's really, really hard and our heart isn't totally satisfied because it's, it's only going to be satisfied when we see Jesus face to face and we're freed from our sin. And then the final thing I would say in this, just in terms of contentment, and this is, this is you know, Jesus says this over and over and over again, and that is that our contentment in this life is going to be primarily based on our relationship with Jesus. Like that is the source uh, of true contentment is Jesus himself and living life in relationship with him, trusting him, serving him, worshiping him. That's what's really going to give us the greatest contentment in this life. And so just to kind of land the plane, um, the, the bottom line here being with the heavenly perspective and a proper kind of heavenly worldview of living in the present evil age while uh, our minds are upward bound is keeping expectations of this life appropriately low um, while seeking great intimacy with Jesus. And that seems to be how heaven informs Paul's contentment and how we can grasp it too. So let me, I'm going to say a quick prayer and then um, I've got six minutes for questions. Uh, Jesus, uh, bless us with this wisdom. Um, give us the mind of Christ that we would enjoy this life. We would enjoy you first. We'd enjoy serving you. And we enjoy the blessings that you give us and have grateful hearts. And Lord, um, let us make no mistake that our true satisfaction will be found when we're with you face to face. And um, help us, like Paul, to live the upward call, to have an upward heavenly trajectory. So we trust you with this. Ask the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any questions?
Yes, sir. Yeah. And I think that's something that is important to all of us in order to have that kind of vision. And I'm not saying that he's going to appear bodily or like he did the disciples, but I think that's something to pray for that we have some type of revelation or experience. I'm not talking about, yep. you know, running down from the hills. Church, but something that would motivate I think that is tremendous. For those of you who did not hear, uh, what John is saying is that um, you know, part of what drives, and this is in the book I'm working on this, this is one of the chapters is dedicated to what you said about seeing Christ. Part of what drives Paul's heavenly mindset is that he saw Jesus. He saw Christ in his glorified form on the road to Damascus. And Paul in Galatians says that that encounter is what drives his whole conversion, his theology, his whole understanding of things. And so, um, and so what John was saying is that like in our own spiritual lives, the value of praying to see and experience Christ himself. He's not, we're not saying that that means that Jesus is going to you know, walk into the room in a bodily form, but you know, we can see Christ in his word. Um, sometimes as we pray in different kind of spiritual ways, we can see Christ. Um, we can see Christ in creation. You know, that's what in Romans 1, it says that uh, we can see the glory of God in his creation. Um, and, and two, we can also, as we pray, we can see God's work. We can see God's work in our lives as he heals or he resolves situations, he blesses us, he helps us. And so one of the things that John is saying, this is so valuable, what a great comment, is that in our lives, pray, pray to experience the presence of Christ and pray to see the glory of Christ, whatever that may look like and however God may communicate with us as individuals. Great stuff. Question? Well, just to follow that up, obviously the Word became flesh, but there's still the Word. We have the right, Word, right. and it is uh, essentially God continues to speak to us, but we have to engage the Word. Amen. primary place that we see Christ experientially is in the Word itself, truly. And by the way, just along those lines... Uh, I would say in, in, in this conversation, the book that's the most helpful for me is Revelation. Uh, Revelation is, is, a lot of times we feel like it's out of bounds. Out of bounds. It's, it really is accessible if you have a good commentary. Um, there's one online. It's by Poitras and Frame. Uh, and it's really accessible. It's for lay people. I'm, using it, I'm going through Revelation right now. I'm using it. And um, it's really, really helpful. So just to give images of, of Christ and his heavenly glory, Poitras, Vern Poitras, and John Frame. That's a free PDF online. Return of the King is what it's called. Any other questions? Comments? Letters to the editor. Words to your mother. Okay.
What's that? Oh, truly a pleasure. You can see it wasn't you know throwing bear bear wrap in the briar patch. All right, we all have a great day. Thanks for coming. God bless you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.